Hey there, welcome to Pickled Parables. This podcast is presented by Parable Ministries as a Bible teaching resource. Thank you for joining us. Pickled Parables is a podcast about taking in and living out the Bible. Here we will study, contemplate, and testify to the Bible's incredible teachings and how it leads us to live better lives. To stay up to date with all things Parable, follow us on Instagram at Parable underscore Ministries and visit our website at ParableMinistries.com. We hope today's message finds you well. Merry Christmas, friends. Uh, I hope this podcast finds you well as you celebrate with your families or maybe have finished celebrating. Uh, we're going to look at something that I, I hope that it can really either put you in the right headspace for getting excited for Christmas um, or it, if you are listening to this after is a reflection on Christmas for you. Uh, these are things which have been bouncing around in my head for uh, the last few weeks. And uh, if, if you've heard a sermon on Christmas, it's very likely you have heard someone discuss the people of Christmas and all the characters and all the details and, and the prophecies and, and all these things leading up to the Savior's birth. Usually these capture the Christmas that is present in our nativity scenes, and rightfully so. Like I said, another popular perspective is to look at all the prophecies and and how like God had this plan for for Jesus's birth, and these serve to build our faith as as we lead up to the Christmas season. And these these messages are good. I'm not saying that to say, oh, you know, but I would say those are essential to understanding that. Like you you can tell the Christmas story and it works, but to really get the 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 full the full effect of what God did in that in that time of Jesus's birth, um, having that detail is important. And so this episode, I I want to focus on a couple of prophecies, as well as some some history of Israel, and give the weight and to, to try to help give some weight and significance um, to the advent of Jesus. Um, the prophets we're going to look at come from a time period called the post-exilic period. And uh, that is, it's the time after they had been taken at, to exile and later uh, allowed to return to the land um, while, while under the control of the, the Persians. And so the first of these is the prophet Haggai. Now, Haggai, in his prophecy is writing to a group of people who were allowed to return to their land after 70 years. Uh, and th- this could be as many as, th- you know, three generations of people who have grown up in exile, uh, now allowed to return. And these people have never seen the land. It's a thing of legend and remembrance, something that their grandparents and great-grandparents told them stories about. And I imagine it's like when you you sat with someone and, you know, you talk to them about what the way things used to be. And as they recount their experience, it's likely the only way that we will really ever fully capture what it was like 
And so for many Israelite people, they have never experienced the land in the temple. And so in Haggai's time, the, the people were allowed to return by order of Cyrus the Great, and, and they returned, but the land was destroyed, and it was in conflict. They had been gone over 70 years, and the people began to rebuild, and as they rebuilt their houses and set up a life for themselves, the, the ruins of the former temple sat nearby, still destroyed. And the people had homes in the land, but God did not. This is what the prophet Haggai's charge to the people was. This is Haggai chapter 1, starting in verse 2. It says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the temple. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it, that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much, and behold, it came to little, and when you brought it home, it blew away. Why? declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. God tells them to build the temple. Uh, get on with it. And, and what's really cool is, is they actually do. Uh, it seems that maybe some of the folks present had been there in the previous generation and maybe had remembered the splendor of Solomon's temple or at least have had a story about that temple passed down to them. Because Haggai's next words to the people are one of, of, of needed encouragement. Haggai chapter 2, starting in verse 3. Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. According to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. For thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. And I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. Silver is mine, the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. They're discouraged by the shape that the temple was in. And as a result, you know, they, they're, they're comparing what they have in front of them with what they had had in the past. And God gives them a few things to chew on. First, he tells them that they need not worry for fear because of this. He essentially tells them, y'all don't have to compare what you're, what you're building now with what was built before. God tells them, probably most importantly here, that he is in their midst. I'm in the midst of you. It's as if God is saying, yeah, this temple is not as swanky. Like, it, it ain't as nice. 
is the last one. But I'll dwell in it and I'll be with you. That's what the temple is for. That's what it's about. And God is looking on the one they have built and saying, yeah, I, I, I will be here with you. Third here, and you know, he tells them that they can look forward to a day in the future where the temple that that does that is that's going to be that there's going to be a temple one day that outdoes the glory of the previous temple, uh, the temple that Solomon built. And when that temple is built, there will be peace, peace. Something many of these people had not experienced for some time was peace. That guy's prophecy is to a group of discouraged returnees to rebuild with expectation for a day in the future when God will rebuild and have his temple fully realized, looking forward to that day of peace. So after Haggai is the next post-exilic prophet, the prophet Zechariah. Now, essentially, when Zechariah is writing, he's, he's writing, he's a contemporary of Haggai. He's, he's writing around the same time. And the people are back, the temple is built, or at least being built, but things in the land are not good. One might say there is not a lot of peace. And Zechariah's prophecy is much longer, um, much stranger, and it's very, very minded towards the future. And so the people are looking for this future messianic king in the kingdom that the Messiah is going to set up. And honestly, Zechariah's prophecies are jam-packed. And it ends with looking forward to this coming day of peace and salvation when the day of the Lord finally arrives. And so um, that's the gist of Zechariah. Uh, there's some very specific prophecies in there. It's a very wild book. So moving out of Zechariah, which again, it's its own study, we're going to move into the final post-exilic prophet, the prophet Malachi. Now, when Malachi gets on the scene... Uh, things are bad, and the hopes and pieces, peace of the prophet Haggai and the prospects of this new glorious kingdom that Zechariah talked about, um, they seem nowhere to be found, and they don't really seem to be on the horizon anytime soon for the people during, during Malachi's time. And so, as a result of this, the, the people of Israel are frustrated. They're frustrated because much of Malachi's prophecy um, is an argument between God and his people as a result of their feelings of not having got what God promised to them. And these arguments, these, this back and forth between the people and, and God, they, they see us in that things were real bad. The worship system had fallen apart. The moral landscape of the people was awful. Idol worship had begun. Things are not good in Israel. And so God reintroduces the day of the Lord as a time where these things will be corrected. They will be set right. And, and it's the culmination of the book and how this day of the Lord is actually a point of peace and joy to those who remain faithful to God. Malachi addresses this group of, of his frustrated people. And at the end of his prophecy, he leaves us with these words. This is Malachi chapter four. It says, for behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all the evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, 
so that I will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall shine, shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet. On the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts, Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb, for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children, and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Malachi's final prophecy is a summary of what he has already said. And and it can be summed up as this. The day of the Lord is coming. And as a result, the people should remember the law. That is, go back to the source. Go back to, to where all of this came from. Remember your past love. And second here, they should look for the prophet Elijah or a prophet who is like Elijah, who will arrive before the day of the Lord and will get God's people ready for that day, that coming kingdom. And then the Old Testament ends. And I imagine that, that when Malachi gave his prophecy, you know, there was a rise in hope and joy while the people waited for this prophet. They're like, you know, they're looking around. You know, I'm, I imagine they even had people in mind of, of who this would be. But they have a timeline here. Look for a prophet, and afterwards the day of the Lord will follow. And maybe they had that uptick in hope for a while, but, but then some time goes by, and then a little bit more time, and then even a lot more time. And so much time went by, and, and, and with time, the people's hopes and joys diminished. Year after year, no Elijah prophet seemed to arrive. 400 years go by. There's not a lot of prophecy of things from God at all, let alone a prophet like Elijah. And this is, this is part of the history um, of Israel that, that sometimes we, we don't talk about much because it's, it's not in the Bible. Um, we have the effects of it. We have the things leading up to it. Uh, but this, this time period that ties the Old Testament into the New Testament, I want to give a brief overview of this because it's going to, it's going to give us kind of the emotion of that, of that day when Jesus was born. The time between Malachi and Matthew, often in my Bible, it's, it's two sheets of paper, one that just says the New Testament. This is called the intertestamental period. And the short timeline goes like this. So Malachi gives his prophecy about 450 BC. And then for about 100 years until 330, Israel was under Persian influence and occupation. People had been permitted to return to the land and rebuild, but Persia was still in charge. Like they had governors and overseers and all those things. But then in 330 BC, Alexander the Great of Greece finally overtakes Persia. And as a result, Israel was under new management. I can't help but think of like, you know, when, when you see like a, a restaurant, especially one that has been maybe had an, been in ill repute for some time. And, and you see the sign slapped in the window one day. It says under new management. 
you know, there's hope that maybe with this new situation, this will be the time that things progress forward. They're under new management. And under Alexander the Great, they introduced, they, they were introduced to a litany of Greek gods and ideas. However, Alexander uh, allowed the Jewish people to self-govern and allowed them to hold their Sabbath observances and holidays. This lasted about 10 years until Alexander the Great died, um, leaving his generals to fight for control. And one of these, Ptolemy, 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 let's go with that, seized Palestine and he took Jerusalem and, and he did so on a Sabbath when God's people refused to fight back. And so this time period now inside the intertestamental period is the Ptolemaic period for the people of Israel. They are ruled by the Ptolemies. The people of Israel began to move out of the promised land and settle throughout the Greek empire. And in doing so, they, they adjust to the culture. This resulted in a, a further push for Israeli kids to be taught Hebrew in an attempt for them to retain their culture and their heritage and their language. It also pushed for those Hebrew scriptures to be translated into Greek, to preserve the Jewish religion and spirit moving forward. This translation is called the Septuagint, um, and it's, it's where we get a lot of uh, help in our interpretation and our, in our translation today. Palestine, the, the region of Israel, took on the Greek culture greatly. Things underwent name changes. Some of the buildings were updated to show that Greek influence. But what's interesting is the people of Israel in the area are one of the few cultures who aren't totally swallowed up by the Greek culture moving in. You know, they were, they were taken by Assyria and Babylon, then under Persian control, and now Greece, and there's still a culture that lives on. They rejected Greek religion and thinking for the most part. It's not true for all, but on the whole... They fared better than other cultures impacted by the Greeks. Then, in about 165 BC, a king named Antiochus IV began to try to take the Jewish religion apart. Antiochus IV believed that to not be Greek or worship like the Greeks was a rebellion against being Greek. Antiochus began to persecute the Jews. He removed the high priest and replaced him with a non-Jewish person. He ordered the banning of all Sabbath observances, no more keeping of the holy days. Families are not allowed to carry out circumcision on their, on their male uh, children. And the religion that they set up under Antiochus offered unclean animals in the temple. Things were bleak. Hopes were low. The new management did not turn out to be what we had hoped. Joy was likely not at an all-time high. And the words of Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi lived on that, you know, there's going to be peace. This temple is going to be better than the last one. The day of the Lord will arrive. But things don't seem to be going that way. In time, the Syrian forces came against Judea and were opposed by a group of Jews, led by Matthias and his sons, who refused to worship the idols that they brought in. Matthias passed away, 
and Judas Maccabeus assumed new leadership of the people of Israel. Judas Maccabeus united Israel, fought for independence, and one scholar said that he is Israel's most influential leader since King David. In response to their stand, Antiochus rose up to wipe them out. You'll not defy him. The Maccabees won by striking the, the army of Antiochus in the middle of the night, and they cleaned up the temple. They, they got rid of all of the, the unclean animals. They removed the pagan practices, and they reestablished worship. And to celebrate the dedication, the dedication feast, they went to light the oil of the lamps and only had enough for one day. And as the story goes, the lamp miraculously burned for eight. And this is why the Jewish people celebrate Hanukkah. But Rome was on the move. New management is headed their way. <laughs> uh, Judas Maccabeus sought to further preserve and separate the culture of Israel from the pagans around them. And, and as a result of this, the Pharisees emerge around 100 BC, believing religion has saved this people. And so they hold to religious separatism from on, all non-religious things. During the same time, the Sadducees emerged, arguing that it was the political powers that had saved them. And we need to work with the, this political entity. Either way, neither were really focused on the person of God as the source of their preservation. Rome was moving. New management is on its way. If you've ever worked a job for a long time and you've seen like your boss have turnover multiple times, I imagine it's like one of those things where, you know, you just kind of feel like, okay, let's go again. You know, let's try this again. Rome captures Jerusalem in 64 BC and sets up leadership to oversee under Herod the Great. Now, Herod the Great establishes governorship, begins rebuilding the temple, and later dies. And this is that moment in Matthew where Joseph is in Egypt and, and is told that he is able to return to the land. And so that gets us from Malachi to Matthew, and it's, it's a lot of history in there. And, and this was the Cliff's Notes. This is by no means um, an in-depth overview. And I share that to remind you that the people of Israel were told that a prophet like Elijah would come, and after him the day of the Lord would arrive. And, and with the exception of the days of the Maccabees, which even then were, were bleak and prophecy was not really happening, they seem to have forgotten, either due to oppression or struggle for rule, that, that this is on the horizon. Where is this prophet? Like, where is he at? God, can we get a sign? Well, one thing is for sure. This is not a time of peace. There was not prosperity. God's presence seemed to be pretty far off because most people were not hearing from God like they had in the past. They had the scriptures. They had countless accounts of God appearing to his people. They knew what it looked like. But joy was in short supply. Peace was in short supply. Recently, I had the privilege of, of preaching at my church. Uh, and I, I, I preached similar to this area. And, and 
I called these the silent days, the days of quiet. Because there's this tension. Is God going to say something? Like, has he forgotten to send the prophet that he told them about? Is God going to say something here? When is God going to say something? How can we be joyful and have peace in the quiet and silent days when it seems like God's not there? And the good news is that when we look at our Bible, when we look at the scriptures, that that one or two pages separate, we have more Bible to read. And so read on, we must. So now we're going to be jumping over to Luke. And, and I, I know that, you know, well, Matthew's the next one. Yes. But we're going to go to Luke because when Luke writes, Luke's intention is to write a historical account. He says, inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely from the time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you've been taught. So Luke's goal is to write a historical account. And so if we're going to trace this history out of the intertestamental period, out of the silent days, we got to go to Luke. And we're going to need Luke's account here. And so with the last 400 to 450 years of history in mind, these, these quiet days, Luke is trying to give a historical account of his good news about Jesus. And I should note, this is a story. I'm going to read a story now. And this one maybe is a little more familiar for, for the season. Luke writes in Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 5, in the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. Now, while he was serving as priest before God when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. But he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the, in the spirit and power of Elijah, who turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent. 
and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which I be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay inside the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. And they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple, and he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me, to take away my reproach among people. Now, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph, of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying, and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has conceived a son and is in the sixth month with her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leapt for joy, and blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. We're told about a priest named Zechariah, and he's given a big opportunity. His lot was drawn as the person who gets to go into the temple and offer the incense. It's, it, it's very likely a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. And, and it was custom for the people to gather outside to hear from this priest when he came out of the temple. It's a big shot. And while he's offering incense, something huge happens. God sends an angel. <laughs> Tell Zechariah, you're going to have a son, and he is going to be this special prophet in the spirit and power of Elijah that I told y'all about. He's coming. Malachi prophesies of a prophet like Elijah, and here is an angel in the temple telling Zechariah, it's going to be your kid. And Zechariah doesn't respond as you'd expect. You know, for a people who should have been waiting eagerly 
now for 400 to 455, 450 years. You'd think he's like, yes, like, yes. But instead, he he's more focused on the prospect of, he's like, I'm old. I can't have a kid. And as a result, Zechariah is struck mute. He's silent. Everybody is expecting Zechariah to come out of the temple and speak to them, say something. And he comes out and he can't. He's making arm gestures and flapping his arms and like pointing back into the temple and trying to get them to understand what he has just seen, but he can't say a word about it. He's quiet. During this time, Elizabeth's cousin Mary comes to visit and we're told that, that Mary was visited by this same angel. And we get another instance of something that captures our attention. And we have on the map with Zechariah, God's plan to send the prophet. And we have on the map with, with this angel communicating to Mary that, that her son will be born and his name will be Jesus. And he will have this throne of, of his father, David, and reign over the house of Jacob forever. We have it. The prophet that is like Elijah and the one who will bring in the day of the Lord, this, this coming kingdom. And so Mary gets up, they spend three months, and it's almost time for Elizabeth to have her baby, so she leaves. And, and for Mary, I, I, you know, you're like, man, she spent three months out there. Yeah, because she's betrothed to Joseph and now pregnant. I imagine family tensions are pretty high here. And it comes time for Elizabeth to have her baby, and her have her baby she does. Luke recounts this. It says in verse 57, Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child. And they would have called him Zechariah after his father, but his mother answered, No. He shall be called John. And they said to her, None of your relatives is called by that name. And they made signs to the father, inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, His name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was open and his tongue was loosed, and he spoke, blessing God. And fear came on all their neighbors, and all these things were talked about throughout all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. After a few months, they have their baby, and, and they, they go to name the baby, and they were going to name him, like, you know, son of Zechariah. And, and, and both parents, which means Zechariah has communicated this to Elizabeth at some point in the, in the interim, are like, no, 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 his name is John. And immediately, the silence is broken. And Zechariah, for the first time in probably almost a year, is able to speak. At least nine months. And, and, and it says that, that when he is able to speak and he starts to do this, it says that it gets everybody's attention. All the people are talking about this. Zechariah is the priest who went into the temple and came out unable to talk and they have a baby, and now he can talk. And there, it, the whole thing is just chatter amongst all the people all throughout Judea. 
And Zechariah's story is a microcosm of Israel's. It's, it's a miniature. It's Israel's time in silence shrunk down. Both are told about this Elijah prophet and the importance of that person. Both then experience a period of silence. And just as God broke Zechariah's silence, he broke a 400-plus year-long silence with his people. God was not missing. He was doing something. And Zechariah breaks, his silence is broken, and this is the prophecy that he gives. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. For he has visited and redeemed his people, and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers, and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us, that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And now, addressing his son John, And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. Zechariah's prophecy recalls Malachi's prophecy. A prophet who prepares God's people, prepares them for the day of the Lord. A prophet who prepares them for God's plan to bring peace and joy to the nations, just like he told Abraham years and years ago, centuries before. And notice at the end there, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet in the way of peace. Peace. It was what Haggai told him about. There would be peace. And then there was a long time without it. Heck, even in Zechariah's time, they, they weren't experiencing peace. Not really. How do we have joy and peace in the days of silence. Malachi's prophecy and Zechariah's story remind us of how. How we can find joy in times that seem lost and pointless and maybe faith is tough. We have joy in those silent days because God has shown himself time and time again to remember his promises. We have joy because of the hope that we have and in the Christmas season we remember that, that God broke his silence, kept his promise in the person of the baby Jesus being born for you and me. Christmas is a season of peace and joy. That's what the festive holiday gnomes in my house tell me, at least. And for God's people, the circumstances leading up to and surrounding the Christmas story were anything but peaceful. Joy Joy was in short supply. But the Christmas story is a reminder that we have peace in the person of Jesus. We have joy 
in the coming of our Savior, even though we may feel as if we're in the middle of our silent days. We celebrate this first advent of our King as we eagerly await the second. Merry Christmas, friends. Love y'all. Thank you for listening to Pickled Parables. If you enjoyed this message, please rate us, subscribe, and share with your friends. If you're interested in more things like this, check out our secondary podcast called My Dusty Bible. To stay up to date with all things parable, follow us on Instagram at parable underscore ministries and visit our website at parableministries.com. We are a volunteer organization and we would deeply appreciate your prayers. Thank you for joining us today. We'll catch you later.